This is Christy Peterson Schoonover, author of Skeletons in the Swimming Hole, Tales from Haunted Disney World, and there's no wilder e-ticket ride than Sci-Fi Saturday Night. We will begin a mass invasion. We'll tell your people to surrender now and avoid war. It is now time for us to put Earth under our roof. It's your sacred duty to tell us the truth. Confess, confess, that you will give you witchcraft. You expect me to believe that you can overrun the entire world? We cannot be defeated. We have never been defeated. That is the message to bring your people. Yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up. Five by Saturday night. Wow, the world just beach balled on me for just a moment. If you're listening in Singapore, happy Friday, and welcome to TalkCast 226. Join us as we talk about all things this week that probably mean nothing to anyone but us and the vast millions who listen with bated breath at our every syllable. Deep in Area 51 on the sub-level 12, the Terran Bossa Nova, Terra Nova, Real Lobo, Peter Paul and Piper Laurie Dance Studio, and Perfumery, move and smell, move and smell, I am the Dome. Joining the talk cast tonight, the cast is all here, and they're all somewhat here. In the Revere Time Vortex, our violent soundboard vixen, Countess of Shiny Stuff, Vice Secretary of Opinions, or Us Weekly, the non-paper, eco-friendly e-zine for nerds. It's our own girl genius who's sleep-deprived and happy to be here, Kriana. To quote the most dignified prophet, Kevin Tran, What's happening?! <laughs> from the stacks in her personal quiet spot in the dank dungeons only indoor sun and vegetable garden robot reading room the unmutable woman herself known throughout the cyberverse as the obvious successor to dr susan calvin she can non sequitur with the best of them it's zombrarian i'm in advanced placement don't kill me oh my <laughs> to further quote kevin tran from the Four Color Vault of Comics in Manchester, New Hampshire, our lovely Ginger Ingenue. She fell in love with Bella Lugosi on the set of Plan 9 from Outer Space, and she still has the Angora sweater to prove it. It's the dead redhead. And here I was just happy because you mentioned Piper Laurie, and then you mentioned Bela and Ed Wood. I'm well, there in you go. So, thank you. Hey, it's it's my pleasure, and, and yeah, I wrote that. <laughs> Our guest tonight joining us, you know, he's a, he's a regular on but the show. But is it ribbed? Oh, boy. <laughs> creepy jar. <laughs> jar. Put some money in the creepy jar. All right, jar. all right. Thank you. For a change, it wasn't me that did it first. <laughs> you just gave uh, me such a good opening. I couldn't help myself. Put more money in the creepy Aww. jar. Oh. <laughs> Our guest tonight is is a three-peat, our old friend, uh, author, and, and one of our, our, our fun people to have on the show. Michael J. Sullivan joins us again tonight. Michael, welcome back. Hi, how you doing? I feel like a person on Saturday Night Live who gets, when, when do I get to the suite? I get the special key and everything for being well, on that, the that comes, yeah, well, I think it's the Five Timers Club, isn't it? Right, that's yes. what I'm thinking of. Yeah. <laughs> You're two away, my friend. Okay. 
I have to write at least two more books that you guys like. That's right. Which shouldn't be a problem because be. the ones that you we like the in, last three. So yeah, I was going to say, you know, you know, but the first one I couldn't actually pronounce, as I recall. Neither yeah, I've got to make sure that they're pronounceable in the future so that Please, I can just talk about it on the air. <laughs> well, Dome's kind of a lost cause, but I can usually do it. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, I said I couldn't do that one. I said usually I'm fine, but that one was tough. If authors do that on purpose. We try to make it really hard for people to order the books. You walk in and say, I want that book. By you know? that guy. By that, by that yeah, that, that book by that guy with that thing on the cover. I think it was red. blue. oh my gosh it's a genius marketing tool and we're going to talk about hollow world and we're going to talk about all kinds of things in the life of michael j sullivan in the second half of the show uh after our poll but first the news That is the oddest freaking thing in the universe. I'm literally hyperventilating with excitement <laughs> at using that. I we sound, a little. We sound so so marginally professional right now. <laughs> We're so cool, guys. <laughs> it's like wow. we took a sound That's effect sad. and dropped it into a Skype call. <laughs> you know what, Zombarian? Try to do my job, why don't you? I have. I didn't do very well. I know. There's an entire show out there somewhere where I only recorded myself. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. There were other people on the call, but you can kind of hear them in the distance, like. (laughs) It was the whole Zombrarian show, and she didn't talk all that much. No, no, I didn't. It was really sad. (laughs) It was. It was mostly her breathing. Yeah, an occasional cat noise in the background. We're going to have to go over animals again, Kriana. <laughs> oh, damn it. <laughs> Why does Kriana remind me of Kaylee from Firefly? Aww. Oh, that, that is uh, a marvelous You just compliment. scored points. Yeah, I'm blushing. <laughs> so what do we want to talk about this week? I'd like to start. Okay. There's a, there's a place called AnomalyCon. Okay. In Denver. And another one of our friends of the show, Tracy Hickman, was there. Aw, Tracy. He's my favorite. Now, I mean, except for Michael, obviously. (laughs) Here's here's the headline that kind of caught my eye. Anomaly Con 2014. Tracy Hickman has sobering news for aspiring writers. Sobering! Yeah, something that you Scary! Be afraid! Anyway, what was it? Well, he was interviewed, I guess, as part of a a, a table read, and, and, and there were a bunch of people there, and uh, they were interviewing him, and he talked about how he formatted his novel on typewriters in the 80s, and... and yeah. Oh, that's so cute. All of a sudden, somebody asked him, how he was able to write so many books. And then he went really quiet. He said, I have more to do now. 
He then went on to describe the conditions under which authors are laboring today. One can write 1,200 words and sell it for 4.95. At that price, his 120,000-word novel would be $50, which is impossible to market. He said to an absolutely silent room, "I'm fighting for my life as an author." Oh, I, I, you know. I believe that he is, but I believe it's going to get better as well, because the days where it was common knowledge that no one could make a living producing something ridiculously expensive and sell it for 99 cents, those are over. Right. Because we've entered the age of infinite availability and zero production cost. Well, I, I mean, not zero, because obviously you, he has to eat, but like, right. I, I mean, it's not like necessarily you have to print a book to sell it anymore. You don't. So, as as much as I feel for, you know, I, I understand the fact that it's hard since the market is shifting, there, well, there's that's a light. Kind of what this, this whole article was about. Oh, see, I, I jumped of, ahead of you. Sorry. A couple of quotes here. He, he then went on to talk to the audience about his six million people who have read his books. And he said they can't find him anymore because the bookstore is dying. At a book signing in the old days, he'd have fans lined around the block just to have a signature. Now a book signing gets maybe six or seven people. Then yeah, who knows about book signings? He said to an absolutely silent room of a couple of hundred people, I have a six million person following, and they don't remember me. Oh. The writer of the article then goes, it was a stark reminder that the old guard of writing is dying out. I think readers are used to hearing that, but it's never come into a such stark focus as when Tracy, a best-selling fantasy author with 30 years of beloved books, says that he's struggling. But, you know, he's struggling so gracefully. And by that, I mean um, he is adapting. He's changing. He's not, you know, f he's not fighting it. He's just, he realizes... He's not and, fighting the change, absolutely. And this is, you know, when you just say it like that, it doesn't sound that, okay, so he's not fighting it, whatever. It sounds passive. But it's really quite an active thing to do. And it's, uh, I, I want to say noble, but I don't think that even covers it, because what he's doing right now is he's experimenting with uh, business models that everyone's going to take for granted 10 years from now. And yep. he's going to be the one who figures out what works and what doesn't. That's literally what he's doing right now. And he, his struggle is going to make, not the next generation take it for granted, but they will. <laughs> An interesting thing that's similar to this, you know, I assume you know who Joe Haldeman is? He wrote The yes. Forever War? I'm yes. I met him at, uh, it was the Nebulas, I think, a few years ago, and he was trying to figure out, people could not get his book online, and they were complaining, why can't they find it? And so he went to his publisher and says, why is my book not available, you know, in Kindle format? And they said, well, we don't own the rights to that. You do. Uh -huh. and, and he said, oh. So now he's like, what can we do about that? So he was actually talking to me, and, and my wife and I helped him, and we actually got his book out on the Kindle. 
And nice. turns out he made hundreds of thousands of dollars off this. Easily, I just, bet. He's just stunned. He's like he's ecstatic over the fact that we were able to do this, which is why the older authors need to get their backlogs onto electronic media, in which case these problems then kind of solve themselves. I don't know why someone who has that great of a following could possibly be struggling unless they don't know how to find him. Like maybe his readership only buys at bookstores and they don't I, use I think Kindles. from talking to Tracy, potentially he doesn't own the rights to the ah, digital distribution be, for a lot of his but, stuff. But, but the problem with that is that anything that was produced that long ago didn't have ebook rights attached because they didn't have ebooks. Well, I, I don't know what agreements have been made since. I'm just saying just vaguely from personal conversations that, that I've had with Tracy. And Tracy, if you're listening and would like to come on and give us your two cents about what's going on here, as always, feel free. He, he was on not that long ago. Yeah, a couple of weeks ago. A couple of weeks ago. Um, he came in to check so in. So it was kind of a, a the, sobering thought about how publishing, not just how publishing has changed, but how theaters have changed. The purchasing of publishing has changed, and and the 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 sales models are changing. I mean, what you're doing now, Mike, is, is very very different from what a writer fifteen or twenty years ago would have done to sell their books. True. And there, there are those people who just are, well, as you said, mystified. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's a situation where people are, are back then, well, back at that time, people were just doing traditional because that's all that was really available. And if you were self-publishing, it was out of the trunk of your car, which was really hard to do. And very, very few instances was it successful. But nowadays, if there are so many authors out there who have, I mean, I was desperate to find what was the black company in ebook. I mean, things like that, these people have, are, are, are to an age where they don't really, they're not very comfortable with it. And they're, they talk to their agents and their agents are, are not really, you know, proactive on this. And the publishers certainly aren't interested because they don't have the rights to it. And in some cases, they ask them to sign contracts, giving them over the rights. And they don't need to do that if the book's already been done. But the funny thing is with, with, with Joe was hilarious, was they didn't have any copies in electronic form. So the problem what they had was they didn't want to type it all in. So what they actually did was they pirated a pirated copy. Nice. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Nice. And then they went through it and cleaned it up. So they actually <laughs> turned the tables on the pirates, which is kind of fun. Actually, well, you know, and the, and the adage is true. I mean, you know, pirates are just underserved customers. There are people who would not pay you a dime. and But they are much, 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 much fewer than, let's say, the movie industry would have you think. There is a sweet spot in the pricing where it feels too cheap necessarily for you to be comfortable with it but you make up in sales and more than make up in sales actually um in volume the the difference of price yeah i actually have a section in the beginning notes of hollow world that actually to talk about my feelings on piracy which was that you're really not going to yep. stop it it's not that huge of a problem. I mean, I would prefer people to buy it, but quite frankly, you know, if, if they read it and like it, I, they don't even have to buy a part, book for themselves. If they want to, they can buy one and give it to someone else. That way it's perpetuating. But I mean, in some instances, if you're thinking in, the, in, in a good way, 
it's someone who can't afford the book and they're therefore pirating it because if you can't afford it, it's probably a heck of a lot easier to just download it properly. Then you get a really good version as opposed to, you know, risking malware and things like that. But if you're going to do it that way, I mean, it's not that much different than a library. I mean, a library is for people who can't exactly. afford books to be able to go get it. Exactly. And, and there are authors that I know, it was in Russia, I think it was the fellow who did The Alchemist, and this is completely rumors, so don't believe anything I say, but it was the concept that he actually purposely started a pirating concept in order to spread word about his books, and it did oh, help. Oh man, now I feel that. bad for hating that book. <laughs> I could be wrong, so don't 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 rely. On I wanted to like it so bad. Sorry, whoever that author is, right. Paolo Bagliucci, I think. Sorry. Uh, no, he didn't do Alchemist. Oh no, that was a different one. Is he that the one that did? Girl. Oh, that was a great book, though. I really loved that one. Yeah. I don't know what that says about me. So I mean, the same arguments that they were having about libraries. 75 years ago. They're still having them about libraries. Let's face that fact. I mean, the fact that libraries cannot just buy ebooks and distribute them as many times as they like, people are, are trying to like say, oh, you can only lend out three copies of this at once. It's completely artificial and it's completely ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. It is. In this day and age. And like anyone who thinks that you can't make a living selling your freaking novel for $9.99 needs to take a peek at the apps on their freaking iPhone, okay? Because, let me tell you... That are selling for $0.99. Cents. They're selling for $0.99, cents and it costs a hell of a lot more to hire a developer than it does to hire an author. No offense, authors. Why but, would that be? Because the market for them is, is huge right now. What's the market for an author? I have no idea. That's what I'm saying. But but I do know that developers are going for premium pricing. And the last time I had to hire someone to write just, copy, it was like twenty five bucks an hour. How much do you think Stephen King goes for? Oh, oh, Stephen King is an exception. That's like hiring Steve Jobs. Right. But I'm just saying that. Like I'm author. just saying, like a normal, like run of the mill, someone who like blogs for a living is not going to make a hundred dollars hey, hey, hey. an hour. No, no, no. Someone who blogs for a living, who is just, like, average at writing, is, you know, writing for their blog. They get ad revenue, probably. If they're part of a big network, maybe they get paid. They're not making $100 an hour like a programmer is. Now... I I, I just thought you were talking about novels. I, I will be talking about novels in a second. Oh. Now, say that person wants to write a novel, and they're an average person... I don't know where I was going with that, actually. Me either. Anyway, anyway, so 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 you're writing a novel. I, I say the going rate for an average author, not that you're average, just generally, is somewhere between, like, let's say 50 bucks an hour, maybe. I, I think that would be reasonable, although I hear that they're paid by the word sometimes. So I, I don't know about how many words you can write in an hour. I guess it depends <laughs> how fast your hand is. But, but so, so let's say $50 an hour. A programmer goes for $100 an hour. These programs that, that people just literally take for granted every day sometimes have teams of 5 to 10 programmers just for the one application. And that's not to mention, you know the programmers ain't designing any of the graphics that go into that program. Because that's not what they do. Um, I've seen that happen, and it is not pretty. <laughs> okay. It is it is just not good. Now this app turns around so we're paying like okay now 5 700 dollars an hour with all the with all the um 
designers and five programmers and now you're selling this for 99 cents and they're profitable yeah. and now the the authors come in and say or or the the musical artists or whoever comes in and says if i sold my product for 99 cents or a dollar or 2.99 i i would die well then either you suck or you're not marketing yourself enough or well enough or you're not working hard enough the at it. The problem right now for authors is that the market hasn't solidified yet. That's and true. people are going in different places, trying different models. And I think that's part of what Tracy's issue is, too, as well. Because we've seen him try two or three different models so far. That's, that's well, absolutely true. I have a question true. about here, because we're talking about value. I mean... You spend, what, nowadays $12 for a movie that you are entertained by for two hours? You can buy a book that can entertain a lot of people for a week. Some people spend that, but not me. <laughs> you can, even a rented movie is going to oh, cost you Yeah, that. some people spend <laughs> that, but not me. All right, Creon. costs you more than $0.99. Cents. Right. But you're talking about something that's going to entertain you for possibly as many as, you know, 100 hours of reading time. But mm -hmm. that's not worth more than 99 cents to you? Nope. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's, it's really honestly not. I mean, I, I would rather buy 25 of your books at 99 cents than one of your books at $25. Okay, so if you put it that, that way, if you sad. price your books at ninety nine cents, you get twenty five of my dollars. If you price your books at twenty five dollars, you get zero. Right, but I want you to buy twenty five of my books at five dollars. That is still probably not going to happen. the The trick about apps is that they're so easy now now think about this for a minute you're, you're I'm talking not quite about certain that apps are going to you make the assumption that any app made is going to make a profit no that's absolutely not true absolutely okay. not so what you're talking about outliers then that the random person can make millions just like you know Hugh Howie makes millions too and he did a self-published book but I mean are you talking about the average person? Well, no. Well, maybe. I don't know. I mean, yeah, well, no. uh, you know, a Tracy Hickman certainly can can do it and he is doing it and he is an amazing guy. But like it's possible for authors to come out of left field unknown and do the same thing. It's absolutely possible if you're good enough and you're you're savvy around the social media and you build up a good enough fan base, you can absolutely build it up from nothing. Absolutely. But won't that, won't that absolutely cause a limit in the quality of writing that you're receiving? Because what you're going to find is you're going to find people who are really good at selling their work, but the work itself may not be the quality that you're looking for. And in the long run, that work is not – in the short run, it will sell. In the long run, it won't. Yeah, so, so, so there's a couple let patterns. Me, let, me, let, well, me, let, me, let me just jump in here for a second. Theodore Sturgeon's Third Law of the World. 90% of everything is crap. If it wasn't, you wouldn't know where the good stuff was. If you look at any app store, if you look at the Apple app store, 90% of what's there is not doing well. And it is such crap. <laughs> if you look at these, these book repositories, it's the same issue that it's always been. The cream rises. The good stuff 
happens. But not but always. Happen- That's not always happen- true, though. But what's happening with electronic publishing right now is that they're still struggling to find a number of the the framework for it to work there there this works in this particular case this works in that particular case but there was a really really good uh for the published book a really really good model the bookstore we've evolved beyond that now i think because of the electronics and now it's a question of finding the model finding the price finding the framework refinding the audience which is now also scattered and stratified so there's a whole lot of things going on here uh and now would be an odd time to get into the whole story bundle thing because that's one of the ways that the readers are refining authors and finding new ones. And, and uh, so not to toot our own stuff. horns here, but so are we. Well, yeah, you know, that, I mean, that's kind of our goal in life, is to help people find authors that we love. Find the cool stuff, yeah. Exactly, absolutely. exactly. That's our, that's our whole um, raison d'etre here. Moving on. <laughs> well, well, hold on one second, because I, I was going to say, um, in, in the App Store, if you have a successful app, there there's kind of two models that I've really noticed happen, two, or two behaviors. The first one is sort of the surge, where you release something, it gets insanely popular, everyone buys it, and then it sort of peters off. And you've got a long tail of, you know, customers, but it's not a lot of sales. The other one is something more like I would consider a book series, perhaps, whereas you you don't necessarily get a ton of people on the initial release, but you keep building it up and building it up and building it up. And let's say by the time you get to book three, you know, maybe book one, you had a handful of people who read it and absolutely fell in love with it. And then they told all their friends and, and their social media, book two, maybe maybe you had 10. Book three, maybe you have 50. Book six, if you keep going on in an, in an incredible series, and maybe they're not long. Maybe they're just chapters. Who knows? Um, you, you could have millions. Which is another model. And, and that could be years not- down the line. Right. And it's just a different sort of pattern of, of sales. But it's, it's possible for that to happen. Oh, um, yeah, absolutely, yes. And and it's great when it does because then you have a really steady income. <laughs> but but it's always it's always predicated on on you continuing the level of quality. And then say once you've got ten million readers buying your stuff for ninety nine cents a book, you're gonna be pretty fine. <laughs> you're gonna be pretty fine in a perfect world. Well, yeah, in a in a perfect world, and maybe ten million is extreme. But even if you have you know. 50,000 people yeah, reading absolutely. every book. You know, that's not not unreasonable, I don't think. Is it? 50, not so far. 50,000? I don't it's know. Good enough. No, it's not. So, so uh, I mean, just... Yes. We need, yes. We need to move forward. No. Talk, to us, talk to us about Jack Kirby. You know who Jack Kirby was. I do know who Jack Kirby was. He, some would say he was one of the founders of the marvel that exists 
nowadays. He was an artist. He was a, a writer. He started, he drew some of the original amazing characters like Captain America and the Hulk and started the Kirby method, which is where you, somebody goes by and draw uh, and writes what the, is going to happen in the panel and then you come by and you draw it afterwards. <laughs> so, so how much money did he make? Not a whole hell of a lot. All these characters. Apparently, at the time when you worked for Marvel and you signed your paycheck to get paid, there's a little stamp on the back of your checks every time you would get paid that said, "If you are signed this check, that means you are turning over all of your rights to Marvel Comics." So, needless so to it say, came, it came down to Stanley and Jack Kirby were basically the sole of Marvel in its beginning. And since Stan Lee was the nephew of the guy who owned Marvel, uh, <laughs> he got the money. <laughs> so Jack point. Kirby's heirs are petitioning the Supreme Court over rights to the Marvel characters uh, for reimbursement for the X-Men, the Incredible Hulk, and the Fantastic Four. I can understand that. It's going to be an interesting fight. At this point, especially, Marvel is not, not just Marvel Comics anymore. Marvel is a subsidiary of, oh God, who? Uh, I, I don't really think they have a case, but hopefully it's more complicated well, than... The one thing they could fight is that the artists and the other creators had to sign their paychecks under duress. It was either you signed your paycheck and you got paid, or... You went hungry, so <laughs> I guess the, the court of appeals said that uh, notice was sent to the heirs of Marvel to terminate the contract of Jack Kirby. It wouldn't have been valid if Kirby's work for Marvel was deemed work for hire. And while Kirby's was, according to them, Stanley's wasn't. That's entirely possible. Stanley kind of, uh, yeah, was the nephew of the guy who owned the company. But the thing that I find amazing <laughs> is that Jack Kirby, his heirs, none of them ever received a penny of royalties from Marvel. No, that's completely exactly why they phrased the contract that way. That's what no. you do when you don't want to give someone royalties. You say, all right, you're doing this work, and I'm paying you for it, and then it's mine. It's kind of a standard thing to do with artists period so I mean I guess it sucks that he didn't retain rights but if he didn't want to make the deal he shouldn't have made it well you you can't cash the check otherwise yeah the so the first is, time the that happens you quit <laughs> but the bottom line is that Jack Kirby was treated that way Stan Lee was treated a different way so the Supreme Court may actually hear this appeal hmm That'll be interesting. I don't it's think that's very interesting Kirby because Stanley, it's going to, Kirby it's going to, is fighting that for a long time. It's been 15, 20 years now, hasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Very long time. And like I said, though, they're not just fighting Marvel, though, anymore. They're fighting. Is it well, Time Warner? Or who owns Marvel now? Disney. Disney. Disney owns Marvel. They've got pretty deep pockets. I don't yeah. know. I think it's such a too dangerous of a precedent though because 
say you have something and you just want like music done for it or or you know cover art and then for some reason it becomes a cult hit and you've paid for that cover art it was clearly you know a work um for hire for hire because you have a contract to that effect and it was understood at the time and all of a sudden you're making a shitload of money off of it if they rule in their favor that means anyone who's had a contract like that can then go back and say well now you're popular so i'm going to sue you for more money that's just not even fair i'm sorry well what's also not fair in this particular case is that when the court of appeals appropriated kirby's copyright questions and gave them outright to marvel unquestioningly it affected a transfer of wealth on a massive scale wait they did they they gave them what they gave unquestionable copyright to Marvel of anything that Jack Kirby ever did for them. Which was under contract. Which was work for hire contract. Yeah. So what's the problem with that? There's a lot of problems with it. Why? That's the contract that he signed. I mean, I understand it was on his paycheck, but you sign a contract, you sign a contract. I find it hard to believe that that all of a sudden they just found out that this was the case. It's not all of a sudden. It's being fought for 20... Well, I I know, but I mean, like... He knew that was the case when he signed it, right? Shouldn't he have sued when he signed it the first time to get paid? You have two people sitting next to each other. Okay? They're both doing essentially the same thing. They're both under the same kind of contract. You don't know they're both under the same contract, though. They were. How do you know that? They were. Does it say so in the court records? Because I I would bet money that they weren't. Well, it turns out you'd be wrong, because they were. All right, but did What's-His-Face leave the company to Stanley? No, he was fired. Okay, so how did he acquire these rights, then? He went to go work for DC for a while. Okay. And the court just gave them to him in uh, in a kind of rush to judgment kind of deal. So now that may actually get looked at by the Supreme Court, which I think would be nice in... Because, you know, artists uh, who do the work, you know, deserve deserve a share of, of what happens with it. The other They're part really you have to think about, Kriana, is just the time of, of when it was. I mean, you were just talking about how writers are 25 bucks an hour. They're not worth all that much. If you no, think. no, I wasn't saying they weren't worth all that much. I, w- I was trying to make the point that de- developers are in incredible demand. I'm not sure a developer's worth what they're getting paid right now, necessarily. But there's just, you know, not enough of them to go around. Probably the artist of his time, and it was not too far from the Depression. Right. And so it was like, you either sign your paycheck, or literally, you don't eat. (laughs) It is different now. Things are, and that's why we have different laws in place now for things like that. Yeah, absolutely. um, I think what the family is fighting is... At that time, it was found to it was really, really unfair of what they did, and yeah, it was. Well, if they if they did have the same contracts, and the court just randomly granted Stan Lee the rights to it because he wanted them, obviously that's a problem. Well, that's exactly what happened, unfortunately. Then, then the contracts shouldn't even be an issue at that point, because. But the court of appeals chose to make it the issue. Yeah, well, courts are fun like that, I guess, huh? They are. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, you never know what they're going to say. No, we don't. Those rapscallions. Hey, you know, if if 
um, Miracle Man can revert back to to uh, um, yeah, you know the guy Neil Gaiman. Then oh geez, yeah, I knew you, I was when I said that you were gonna. Yeah. Here we go. Now I'm gonna rant about something. This is this is gonna yeah. be my rant of the week. Actually, no. Cam Cam had some comments about our previous conversations. Let's see. He said uh, he had a friend who worked in a bookstore and had so many horror stories about people coming in and asking for the blue book or their favorite <laughs> book or the book they saw on Oprah. Yep. Oh, there we go. And then he says he remembers that one show and he enjoyed listening to your breathings on Brarian. Oh my. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but I think Cam I needs think to put Cam some money in the creepy jar. The creepy jar. <laughs> and and then he said, um... Cam, Cam gave us the creepy, the creepy jar. That's Thanks, true. Cam he did provide us the creepy, creepy jar. jar. Yeah. And then he said, uh, if content providers give him what he's want, he's more than willing to pay for it, and that mm-hmm. we have sent him in the direction of great new authors many times. Oh. Yay, that's what we want to do. Thank you, Cam. Speaking of great new authors. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, I heard a segue. Wait, are we doing the poll? Oh, that's I forgot about the poll. Man. It's an easy one this week, so we didn't have all that many people decide to join us with it. But very quickly, the question was... Listeners need to realize that Facebook won't allow us to do the poll on there anymore because they've been polled way too many times and it's evidently painful for them. Um, (laughs) So we've moved the poll to our website. uh, And if Kriana would remember to post it on the Facebook page, maybe more of them would come over. Uh, To do that. Well, actually, the the link will be valid from week to week, so we can just leave that one up there and it'll be fine. So we, I asked folks, who, which rock star is most likely an alien? Because I had to come up with something, and I had just seen Gary Newman down in Boston, and I thought, you know, back in the 80s, people kind of saw him as an alien, so kind of extension. Um, so we had a split for number one between David Bowie and George Clinton, which is a very cool split, actually. And then we had a few votes here and there for the residents, question mark, and I dare our listeners who are listening, I guess that's just Cam tonight, to tell us who question mark is, because not everybody remembers him. And somebody had mentioned Ira Kaplan from Yola Tango. Which I have no idea of. You missed my response. Which Did was? You say, were you the one that said Benedict Cumberbatch? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's an acting rock star. I know! He's just too amazing to be human. This is true. That's true. That was my thought process, anyway. I'll agree with that one. But we'll get something up for next week, too. Actually, the next week's probably ready to go, so... Yep! Um, It's going to start on... Saturday at... Sometime. 2100. So that's the Easter poll? Apparently. Oh, okay. Oh, you got to see that one, guys. Wait, is is that the right weekend to do it? I thought it was yeah. uh, that early. I no. no. Easter's on the 20th, you guys. Oopsie. Well then, Dead Redhead, please give me the new poll before, <laughs> before Saturday at 2100 hours, whenever that is. 
I'd just okay. like to say that y'all are a bunch of heathens. <laughs> I think it's 9 p.m. That's my best guess. 2100? Yeah. Yeah, 9 o'clock. Eastern Standard No, it's Eastern Daylight Time right now. God don't. Whatever. No, not whatever. I have to schedule international meetings. It's a big freaking problem. (laughs) Granted, you had something you wanted to talk about, the Inkwell Awards? Oh, right. Mr. Bob Almond, our favorite inker, which is saying something because we like inkers here. You do. Well, maybe it's just me. I don't know. Um, says, check out the Inkwell's eBay page, which there will be a link to from this podcast. Um, they are having a big sale. Cool. And there are a lot of really cool artists participating. You can get your dream inking print. I guess it's not a print. It would just be an original. Right? Right, it would be an original, if that's what, unless it's a print. It's one or the other. Exactly. Exactly. So, that you've always dreamed of. Hey, why aren't they listed with the links that we have? Why aren't what listed? The paintings, I wanted to go, the drawings, I wanted to go see. Oh, I think they should be there. Be there. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. It begins on Saturday. So, by the, the, sorry, I'm sorry. I misunderstood this press release when I read it the first time. He sent it to me, he sent it to me a couple days ago, but it only starts on Saturday. So by the time you hear this, they will all be up there. And I have some pictures of things that are going to go up. And they're really cool. So, you know, Black Panther may make an appearance by this um this really famous inker named Joe I'm going to murder his last name but it's in his memory I think Joe Rubenstein? No, no, no. It starts with an S. Joe Sinot? Oh, Joe Joe Sinot. Sinot. Okay, I was yep. close. Anyway, cool guy, great inker and is there Joe Sinot fundraising challenge? So and one of our friends from the show, Rusty Gilligan, is in. Is got one of his pictures in there. It looks like. Oh no! I'm sorry. It's the inking challenge. Inking challenge. Very cool. Anyway, if you want the details, there will shortly be a post on the Inkwell Awards website. I have it from an inside source who is going to put it up later on this evening. <laughs> Namely myself. <laughs> so it will be there. And we will link to it, and you can read up on the history of this inking challenge and go to eBay and pick up your own copy of of the inking challenge by your favorite inker. Because inkers are cool. At least I think that's what's going on. And if not, I'm going to hear it from Bob. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you will. (laughs) Over and over again. So get it right, young lady. I think it's a really cool thing, though. Did the inkers all get the same pencil sketch, and they all ink it in their different inking ways, and it helps show off their skill and individual personalities. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I love that. Because I heart inkers. And authors. You know, speaking of authors. Speaking of authors, a couple of books ago, we brought uh, Michael J. Sullivan onto the show to talk about his, his... Please pronounce it for me, Michael. Raira. Thank you. (laughs) 
and as as many times as I've written it down and and parsed it out, I'm not getting it. But I really enjoyed the series uh, enough so that we brought him back a second time and brought him back a third time to talk about his latest book, Hollow World. Welcome to the show. So happy to be here. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so Hollow World is kind of a departure from the fantasy stuff that you've done previously in some ways. Not in all ways. The but fantasy in some ways. stuff. Yeah, we really still stuff. use words. That fantasy stuff. <laughs> that crap the young kids are doing these days. Uh, <laughs> I guess so. Never used the word crap talking about your work. So that right. and the ecstasy, you know. Nobody yeah, does ecstasy yeah. anymore. That's so 90s. <laughs> I don't know. Except that never Isn't mind. it a band? <laughs> it might be. Yes, they are. If you're I listening. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, Hollow World is a change for you in a lot of respects. So, let's talk about it a little bit. Uh, what the overriding factor of, of Hollow World is about. Oh, you want the whole rundown on the book here? Sure, why not? Haven't we? Have we done that before? I don't think so. Don't right. think so. Not on the uh, air, I guess. Anyway, let's go for <laughs> okay. it. Okay. So, Hollow World is—it's uh, a classic time travel novel. In the sense, it's about sort of a nerdy guy who stumbles on a secret, uh, traveling forward in time, similar to like H.G. Wells' uh, novel, *The Time Machine*. Uh, it's uh, so it's kind of character-based rather than hard science. It deals with a guy who dreamed about doing something great but real life always kind of got in the way and now he's he finds he's dying and it takes he takes this wild gamble that maybe the future may hold some solution or a cure uh only when he gets there he discovers that uh, it's very different from anything he could possibly have imagined i mean because he's he's watched all the same kind of movies that you people have. I mean, he's watched, you know, Blade Runner, and he's watched Mad Max, and and, and then of course you, you know, the 2001. So it's either it's a stark white, you know, world, or it's this, you know, killer mobs kind of thing. And so that's what he's expecting, and it doesn't turn out to be quite like that. So I kind of got the idea of of doing this when I read Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, and and when I read it, I mean, that book was written, I think, in the early 30s. And right. when I read it, I actually came away thinking that it wasn't necessarily that bad of a future, although he was trying to depict it, I believe, as a dystopic future. But by today's standard, it isn't quite so bad. And I started thinking about that whole kind of concept that, let's say, if you took a Roman soldier and you transported to our time, he'd probably hate, you know, modern era. I mean, one thing, Rome is no longer a superpower, so that'd probably you know, bum him out. Um, and so I wondered what would happen if someone from today went like that far ahead in the future, and with if they really found a real utopic world, if if they found true paradise, what at least what you know we would hope would be, would we even be able to recognize that as being good, or would our own you know our own prejudice and our own biases you know make it impossible for us to even accept it? And then I kind of started wondering. Um, you know, if, if we if we had a world where there was no war or famine or death or racism or class warfare or any of that kind of thing, what would what would society have to do to achieve those goals, and what would we lose in the process? And finally, I, I wondered if we could I could write a story where it explores all these things and but leaves it for the reader to decide for themselves whether what I wrote is dystopic or utopic, and it would depend 
kind of um, it'd be like a Roychat test. It would depend on the reader's own personal viewpoints whether they actually think it's good or bad. And so far, it's actually kind of worked out that way. That some people think it's wonderful. I want to live there, and other people see it and they're like, "Oh my God, this is hell on earth. I would never want to live in that world." Um, so, you know, I have one, and, and it's also interesting how people interpret things. I have one character who's neither male nor female, um, but everyone decides for themselves because no one can talk about the character without using a pronoun. I actually wrote the book without a pronoun, which is kind of Ooh. a trick in itself. But when people respond to me, they always use, either use him or her. So it's interesting to see how people decide what sex this character is, even though it doesn't have a sex. Um, but so it's, it's a book that's designed to promote kind of thought and a variety of deep topics, you know. But it's also an exciting murder mystery as well, which is what propels the plot forward. So in putting together the character of Ellis Rogers, um, just... A guy, basically. You assume. No. No, Ellis, <laughs> no, Ellis is definitely a guy. Ellis is definitely a guy. Um, who's just kind of an everyman who got this weird little idea. Where did this character come from? Why, why did you put him together the way you did? Uh, well... I, I drew him because because of his associate, his his friend, who I wanted to be somewhat kind of old fashioned and have old fashioned values. Uh, I, I set that in where I was born, which is in Detroit, where you have a lot of people who are kind of old fashioned. And, and if you're you're like 50 years old in, in Detroit, you kind of you're on that borderline where you kind of look back and you think that you know the 50s, 1950s were really great, and the modern era isn't quite so good. And I know a lot of people who are like that. I know a great many people, and it's always fascinated me how people will look at today and think it's not as good as what happened before and I keep thinking well why would you do that you're just like not recognizing some of the things that exist today that you know you didn't have before so it really kind of in my mind depends on perspective so with him I wanted to have him kind of borderline where he's I mean he's not completely uh, a, a, a nobody I mean, he, he graduated from MIT he, he's, he's somewhat of a genius in a sense but yeah he's he's just depicted as kind of the average everyday person. The purpose for that was to, so that the reader could kind of uh, view the world through his eyes. Now, unfortunately, I discovered that when you make someone 58 years old, that kind of turns off a lot of people who, for some reason, think that 58 <laughs> is, like, ancient. And you know, they can't relate to that at all. I think... Not and, saying a word. Exactly. And, but, but there were women who were out there saying, like, I couldn't. I just think, keep thinking of him as Benjamin Button when he's really old and shriveled up. I'm like, Really? I mean, uh, I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm 53. I don't look that bad. <laughs> okay, and but, I'm a crap load older. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess we're, we're just not going to appeal to anyone. But, yeah, so I put him at that age because I wanted to have him have, like, this old school thought pattern. And then he's going to be looking at kind of a completely different world and comparing his old world, you know, values and assumptions about things against a whole different world where you're going to have to really kind of, you know, worry about changing your outlook, and can you do that? Now, the, the other thing that you do, too, is you give him, in literally the first chapter, all the impetus he ever needs to do what he needs to do. Uh, you know, you talk about uh, him wanting to escape, him wanting to leave, him wanting to time travel, because he's terminally ill, and figures there's the only thing that I have left 
And there's this marvelous scene in the doctor's office uh, early on where the doctor is waiting for him to, to break down and be upset. And he's just there with a little smile on his face going, got it. I understand. So you've, you've set him up to do all this and you've given him the key of time travel that he stumbles. Well, yeah, the problem, the problem was is that how do you actually have, how do you give someone the impetus to do what he's doing? Because time travel in my story doesn't go both ways. You can only go forward. So if he jumps ahead in time, he can never come back. So what kind of mentality would or motivation would a character have to have to do that? And one of the, I mean, one of the great ones I could think of was that if he's going to die anyway, what's he got to lose? The next thing that you do in the book is you, uh, actually one of the first things you do is you have two forwards. Uh, and the second one is a note about time travel technology. And I hit that and I just kind of went, cool, now I'm going to know how it works. Um, <laughs> <laughs> to which you wrote, Time travel as described in this novel is impossible. Oh, come on. <laughs> yeah. It's impossible as far as we know. True. As, as far as the laws of physics as we understand. I mean, traveling into the future, you, you, everyone does it. You go to sleep, you wake up the next morning, you're in the future. Um, so that kind of time travel always happens. But as described in this book, uh, it doesn't work that way because there's, there's two kinds of time travel. There's one where you actually move through time, used as theory of relativity, where you're actually, you know, an object in motion actually travels slower in time. That works fine if you're going to be doing a, a spaceship thing, but this is not a spaceship thing. This is a guy who makes a time machine in his, in his garage. And so that didn't work. So I needed a stationary time machine as to kind of like reflect the same concept that H.G. Wells did. And there is a th theoretical way you can do that. I actually found a book uh, by a, a notar uh, notable scientist who actually describes how you can do it. But in order to do it, you actually have to create the equivalent of a black hole. And if you did that in your garage, you'd have a problem. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> just, just a little problem. So, uh, so the theory does work, but the parameters uh, that actually cause it to happen can't work now. Maybe there could be a technology that could limit the you know, destructive force of a black hole. If that works in it, then it would be possible. But you've, you've taken the classic science fiction precept of if you have a what if and you add another what if to it and then you add a third one, it doesn't really matter whether they're actually possible or not. It's just that piling of circumstance allows you to, in this case, travel through time. Yeah, and this, the book really wasn't about time travel. It, it's not hard science. Uh, it, it really is what I would consider more old school, because that's why I referenced the whole H.G. Wells things, because in that novel, I mean, he doesn't explain how it's done. He just basically says he flips a lever forward and he goes forward in time. So he's not trying to, you know, put forth hard science, but he's trying to the societal changes and, and, and con contrast with where they are today. Right, and that's kind of the same. That was the point of the story as opposed to the actual. But I, I, I know that in modern age, people, you know, expect more than just he flipped the lever. So I had to actually come up with something that seemed reasonably intelligent. Well, there's no hard science there to work with. So you kind of <laughs> have to make it work on its own. <clears throat> I really enjoyed this book. Uh, and I'm not going to throw any spoilers at you, and I'm not going to throw any spoilers. People who went out and, and, and grabbed your book as part of the story bundle that we curated, 
uh, a number of them have, have said to me, there's some really special, different stuff there, and this is one of them. And I agree. Um, I found it, uh, it wasn't a quick read by any stretch of the imagination. Well, let's talk for a minute since we've already gone through business models about how it came to be. Oh, yeah. So originally I I wrote this novel kind of like on the side while my other books were being edited. And then I submitted it to Orbit and uh, my my editor there loved it, thought it was great, but did not feel that it would sell. Didn't feel that um, this type of science fiction has a market anymore. That, in fact, most things that sell today are either military science fiction or space opera. And this really was classic science fiction, and they just didn't think it would make a, a had a very good big market for it. So as a result of that, I ended up, uh, I actually took it to another, or I had an agent actually take it to another publisher who did give me, uh, uh, who, who made an offer on it. But at that time, I had already decided to self-publish it, sort of. Um, I decided to kickstart it. And uh, kickstarting it, I had hoped to raise, I figured it would cost $6,000 to do the book right because I had Betsy Mitchell lined up. She was the, the Del Rey editor for like 20 years. She did many huge books. And I had Mark Simonetti who did the cover art. He's a great French artist. So I had some really good people working on this. And I figured it would cost about $6,000 to put it together. And I didn't know that it would fund that much. So I, I put it up for 3000 And then I figured I'd pay 3000 Kickstarter people would pay 3000 and the book would get made. And I put it up for 3000 and I hit that within the first few hours. Uh, as a result, at the end of the month of last March, when I ran it, I ended up getting over $30,000 for the Kickstarter, which would have been a fine advance on the book regardless. Um, Absolutely. So then, after the fact, uh, I ran into Tachyon, who is another publisher, and they were willing to do a print-only deal, uh, which I was very pleased with, because what that allows me to do is it will be in bookstores, um, but it also makes it so that I can give away a free ebook for every print book purchased because I don't really feel that a, a person who buys the book in one form should have to pay again for it in another form. I'd rather they spent that money on someone else's book or, or another one of mine. But so you keep preaching. <laughs> so, 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 so that's what I was was hoping for. And and when you when you keep the rights to the ebook, that you can do a lot of things. Another thing I did with it. Um, was I made it so that there is a, a uh, 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 what do you call it, a, a raw, explicit version of the book because this one does have profanity. Now, my original fantasy series was very light on profanity, and a lot of people enjoyed that. So when I made this, I actually put two books in one in the ebook so that you can, you know, click on it and it will take you to the, the clean version. Uh, I really felt that the, the profanity was needed for a lot of the character depth, but if you are, you know, are against that, you can get it without it. And that's one of the flexible things that I could do because I retained those, those rights. Um, so keeping the rights from the ebook was really kind of important to me. And that's kind of how this whole thing came about. And it works. It absolutely works. Um, I mean, you know, you get to say that a lot these days because uh, we have a lot of authors on the show who either people really know or people don't really know, and we can get the exposure out when it works like this. This is this is a really, really cool story. And it's not common for right. for something to be 
funded overfunded by an order of magnitude. I, yeah, I mean, it, it it really wasn't even my fans because it turned out that most of the people who funded it were people who had never heard of me before, which was kind of interesting. So I actually got a lot of new readers through Kickstarter. So that was a great experience. Now, was it just through Kickstarter, or how are you promoting your Kickstarter campaign? Uh, well, it, it was last year, and we promoted it through Kickstarter, and of course I had it on my blog, and of course I had it on Twitter, and I had it on Facebook, and you know, I mean, wherever else you want to promote it. But it turned out that after I funded the first 3,000, uh, I didn't promote it anymore after that, which was kind of stupid, I suppose, but I didn't really think that I needed it because I already had the money. And then, of course, it jumped up beyond that, and I thought, well, okay, you know, you can stop now, but, yeah. <laughs> but people, kept, people kept buying it. Uh, so Darn was- it, why do you keep buying my stuff? But but had I known, I mean, I could have put a lot of a lot more promotion behind it, but I didn't actually bother with it. Stop giving me money. I know it's terrible. <laughs> Those darn backers. But it's getting really good reviews so far, and I've been rather pleased with it because th- when you get reviews, there's there's good and bad reviews, and they don't they aren't positive or negative reviews. I mean, I've had really good negative reviews, and I've had really bad positive reviews. And and the difference is that if someone really loves your book, but for all the wrong reasons, it's really disheartening. <laughs> Man, okay, someone so explain your books for a good reason. Good that's bad review is. What's that? What's a really good bad review? Someone who hates your book for all the right reasons. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Obviously, good- Tom. Oh, God. <laughs> Stop embarrassing us. <laughs> <laughs> no, a, a good negative review would be one where that's very thought out. And there, to me, I think a review should be written for readers, not for the author. It should be designed to tell people that, hey, if you like this kind of book, you'll like this one. And if you don't like that kind of book, you're not going to like this one. And if it's done well and if it's done with that in mind, it makes really good sense. And I, I've had people who have found things in my book. I'm like, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. That was a bad idea. I shouldn't have done that. And that's fine. But when you have people who are, are hitting it for reasons that are ridiculous or aren't even there, that's always the worst one when they say something like about your book that book doesn't exist. on it. <laughs> It is orange on the cover, and I hate orange. Well, yeah, there's a really great one where they actually ding you for the price of your book, which is produced through a traditional publisher, and you have no control over that. So they give it a one-star review. They love the book, but gave it a one-star review because they didn't like the price. I do not get that. (laughs) I don't get that. And for the same reason where people give, like, a three-star review and be like, or or, I, I really hated this book. There was nothing redeeming about it. But three stars? Really? Three stars. I've actually had some people, because I released Persepolis, um, which was the last book in the, 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 the series, because some people had the full original series of, of, of six books. And when Orbit reprinted, they put it in two book omnibuses. But some people wanted that sixth book to go with their set. So I released that specifically. And Orbit was very good to let me do this. And people have found it on, on Amazon, and they bought it. And then they would leave a horrible review saying, this is just the, the end of the same book. And it clearly states that this is, in fact, the second book of the series. But they would give it horrible reviews because they didn't read what they were buying. Good God, people are stupid. <laughs> people, stop being so dumb. Thanks. So, what's going on now? What's, what's in the future? What are we looking for? Uh, well, I'm writing another another fantasy series and I'm really kind of odd about this because Sorry, I, I got excited <laughs> I have a tendency to uh, not like to release a series until they're all done 
Um, so just like with Right Year, I, I wrote the entire series before it was released. And so this book, I've, I've written the first two. I'm getting into the last six, but last seven chapters of the final book before anyone's read it, not even my wife. So it could be absolute crap. And I just wasted an entire year. But uh, <laughs> I don't the, the, think that's true. So true, right. The, the idea is I don't want to you know, get to a situation where I'm in the last book and say, oh, if I could have just changed that second paragraph in chapter four in the first book, it would be fantastic. And I've done that many times. So I try to make sure I get the whole thing out uh, before I actually release it. And of course, if I have the whole thing done, then if I get hit by a bus, the readers will still probably get the book. That's a really interesting perspective. How do you how do you feel yeah, about, I about buses? Uh, <laughs> well, I I've heard and and I don't actually remember who this author was, but there there have been I think a couple who have really really long running series so much so that that they're even taking feedback from the fans as to what the fans would like to happen. I mean, I don't think they're compromising like their artistic integrity or anything, but like. I don't think taking suggestions would be bad. Is that is that something that would ever appeal to you, or just like not your thing as a writer? Yeah, I, I'm not a team player. I I don't collaborate well. <laughs> but no, I mean, it, people have asked me that before. They said, "Well, you know, did, did the feedback on your books, or, you know, like make it into the books?" I'm like, "Well, no. The books were done years ago. I mean, they just took a long time to come out." Hmm. And the same thing will be true with this. I mean, these books will be done in the next month. And then they'll come out over the next three years. And hopefully during the time that they're coming out, I specifically want them to release over uh, once a year because that allows me the excess time to go through and write other books. Because then I have, I know I have income coming in because my wife doesn't like it when they just release all the books. And then, because we get it in advance. And after that, I, I'm, I'm living off of nothing for a while. So that's kind of bothersome. But if I know I'm getting a paycheck each year, then it makes it possible to like, I can do some fun stuff that I, I wouldn't normally be able to do. I hate publishers. That drives me quiet. nuts. No, it drives me nuts to have to wait. Like, especially <laughs> if I know it's only a trilogy. Like sometimes I, I'll, I'll not even buy the first book until the last one comes out because I don't want to wait to read them when I start reading it. Cause I read really fast. And I cannot stand. Yeah, that, that's so. Kind of so I'm, I'm like the reader the version of, of you. Is the fact? Wait, 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 wait. But wait, the, the, there's a huge reason for this. We're not doing it just to torture people. The fact of the matter is, if you put a book out, in and you people like it, then they have a whole year or six months, however long the span is, to talk to other people. And you're excited about it because you're waiting for the next book. And when the next book comes up, you'll be talking about, oh, I can't wait. This next book's coming out. And they'll say, what next book? And then suddenly more people get it. So then when the next book comes out, you have more readers. If the whole thing comes out, someone reads it through, they're less likely to remind other people about it because it's not on their mind. But when that next book comes out, it's on their mind and they spread the word. And that's why, one of the reasons why having a little bit of a gap of at least six months is, is kind of important. I, I agree with you that that's how most people would people react out. to that. I think we have a little bit of lag going on here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just, um, but I, I agree that that's how most people would react to it, but I'm a special sunfish, apparently. You're not most people. No, no, I'm oh, not. No, I'm, sure I'm would love abnormal. To be My wife did the same thing. When, when the new when, book comes out? When I wrote the series and I got to the fifth book, I mean, she... she skip the next day 
in, at work in order to read that next book. I mean, she actually, you know, give me the damn like, I need to have that book next. So I understand a lot of people want to be able to read right. And of course, you forget things too. So you want to be able to read it right after each other. So I understand the mentality. But from a writer's point of view, it really is kind of disheartening. <laughs> So, Mike, from our point of view, when the new series is ready to debut, will you come back? We've definitely well, it depends on if you liked it, because if I come on here and you're just going to yell at me. Oh, <laughs> but we love you. Yeah, sure. Just give me a ring and I'll be happy to come on. No, okay. I, I have to say, though, that I love getting into passionate conversations with people about things that are awesome and important like books yeah absolutely well hopefully uh, hopefully you'll 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 enjoy this one now this is adventures in science fiction is it also fantasy oh my god yeah we just talk about anything cool that we come across that we like so okay because I didn't know if you were just, uh, I mean, Hollow World is a perfect fit for this, this venue. So I didn't know if you were still interested in the fantasy. Oh, but, absolutely. Uh, are, yeah, have me back and we'll, we'll talk about that. Oh, too. yeah, yeah. Definitely, oh, definitely. definitely. All right, yeah. I'm going to wrap this up because... Mark Sullivan is the author. We are lagging so badly that we can't even finish a show right now. Oh. <laughs> I think I hear dead red head flipping in and out. So I'm going to say thank you, Michael, for joining us. It has been an absolute pleasure. Um, I don't have the closing notes up, so I'm going to say we're the official podcast of Boston Comic Con. Oh, I can only kind of hear you, dead red head, and I know my voice is going to show up on the recording. So I'm going to just say we're the official podcast of Boston Comic Con, Rhode Island Comic Con, Granite Con books and booze and comicarthouse.com and visit Bob and Kim for art by your favorite artist that's awesome and I can't even get the coming up calendar to come up right now so mwah good night everybody I know.